I'm Alex Marlowe, Editor-in-Chief of Breitbart News, and this is the Breitbart News Daily Podcast. On today's show, we begin with the media praying that Ron DeSantis fails in Florida in the face of Hurricane Ian, even if human beings suffer. It's sick to pray of stuff, and we touch on some of that in the beginning. Then the media is still melting down over Georgia Maloney, and so is China, and that's a good thing. And because China, of course, is a big problem on the world stage, and another China foe leading a European nation is a big positive development. We've got no major updates on the bombing of the Nord Stream pipeline, though on the live show today we did speak to Dr. Sebastian Gorka, who is of the mind that uh, Vladimir Putin did this to sabotage his own pipeline in order to build up, I guess, sort of a victim narrative at home to perhaps inspire some people to rally to his side domestically. It's not a popular war with Ukraine in Russia itself, so perhaps that's uh, what's going on? But again, a lot of evidence suggesting that maybe it was the U.S. and NATO allied countries as well. We explore some of that in the opening of the broadcast. Joe Biden, who might be a medium, attempted to make contact with the dead during a public event yesterday. Actually, a dead former congresswoman, and uh, she was not there for obvious reasons. So that was exciting to hear about and even more exciting to hear the White House spokesperson, the publicist, for the Joe Biden administration, Corrine Jean-Pierre, how she dealt with it. And uh, I'll tell you, after you hear it, it will be uh, top of mind for the rest of the day. I can guarantee you when you hear the clips. Unbelievable stuff. Dr. Oz has caught John Fetterman, which is exciting. And we have a great woke update that includes the Library of Congress allowing a body positivity activist, read morbidly obese person, to play a priceless flute. Our guest today is John McEntee, former director of the White House Presidential Personnel Office and the founder and CEO of The Right Stuff, a new dating app for conservatives, which launches today. He built a reputation for being one of the enforcers of MAGA in the the latter days of the Trump presidency. He's got a pretty big cult following, actually, and uh, interesting guy, does not do a lot of media, and we are very lucky to get him on the show to talk about his new uh, his new company, but also we get into a lot of detail about some of the do's and don'ts of staffing a government. Uh, one thing I did not mention in the podcast is yesterday, I was on a Larry Kudlow show on Fox Business with John Carney, and it went pretty well. They had us on for a full 10 minutes, which is an eternity on cable news. We'll have the clips for you at Breitbart.com if you want to check that out. I also had a prolonged discussion on the live show, so the SXM app, you can pull that down. I think it was at the top of the uh, second hour I went through all that. So uh, those of you who like to consume the broadcast that way, you get a lot more content. It is uh, available to you if you would like some more Breitbart News Daily every day. Let's get into it. Let's get into the news and starting off with Florida, uh, Hurricane Ian making landfall at Category 4, almost Category 5, which is large. That does not happen very often. And we had a uh, live blog going at the top of Breitbart News. It's still going on. Uh, and the, some of the numbers are very scary. We're evacuation orders for 2.5 million people. Um, and we had, we had one Breitbart one Breitbart uh, staffer, we many Breitbart staffers who were kind of in line of the storm, but one of them said he was relieved he merely lost part of his roof. 
That was uh, what I heard back as the storm passed over his house. That was a uh, that was an interesting way of phrasing it. But life-threatening storm on the coast, Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, definitely in the crosshairs still at this point. And uh, you know that if you are anywhere near those areas at this point, I think. Um, up to 2 million people reported without power in Florida. And we also heard, you know, yesterday I mentioned this on the broadcast, that Cuba t- entirely out of power. So, battering of the Sunshine State, 155 mile an hour winds, which is, uh, that is pretty pretty hard to fathom. Pretty hard to fathom. So, we'll keep you updated throughout the day, but it looks like the cone is going to take it off of the coast of Jacksonville and then up through the far eastern part of Georgia and then up through uh, Charleston, it could still be a hurricane when it hits Charleston. And then we'll dissipate a little bit up through Charlotte and Raleigh and then heading towards the western part of Virginia and even the eastern part of Kentucky, kind of where it looks like it's heading at the moment. But, of course, there's some other models that are in play. But those are the most likely right now. Those are the models that we've been tracking. So... If uh, that is the good news is we could see it go offshore for a while, which is a positive. The the but of course, just because the eye of the storm's offshore doesn't mean it couldn't be devastating still. And it is going to run up. It's going to hit the South Carolina, I think, very hard. And I hope they're ready. Hope they're prepared. Any of you out there in South Carolina? Um, also interesting when it goes through uh, historic areas too. I'm also interested to see if how historic areas hold up. And I think that's where this could be heading. Also, so uh, we are tracking, of course, a lot of the politics of it, and we are tracking uh, a lot of the media spin on it and other entertaining, for lack of a better expression, elements of this. Uh, the There are some things that are just really moving and exciting. For example, there is some footage of 42,000 linemen on standby in Florida. Uh, these people are all heroic, and they're just uh, ready to go to help people uh, get power back and to keep the uh, trains running on time and uh, figuratively speaking, maybe even literally speaking, but I, I don't think the trains will be running at all for a little while, but it really but the figuratively speaking, keeping the trains running on time. And I, this makes me very excited. And I'll tell you this as someone who would like to think of myself as a semi-tough person, um, the, but I, you know, I work from the comfort of my home for the most part. And then to see these guys waiting as a, a hurricane is about to beat down in their trucks, ready to rock and um, help people out. They do dirty work. It's such toxic masculinity. You have to think it, right? So we're going to work on a story on that at brightboard.com. We don't have that yet for you, but I'm reporting it here, which I get to do. And of course, there's a political element in terms of the way the media portrays it. Politico was salivating over Ron DeSantis having to face the hurricane. It was, uh, they, they were so excited at the idea that he has become the Republican star but is facing one of his toughest challenges yet, a hurricane. You know, what's interesting about this is it's true, of course, but the fact that Politico felt the need to say it and when people are going to potentially lose their lives, they're certainly going to lose a lot of property, uh, they're going to go under immeasurable amounts of stress, and uh, it could be uh, do ter- terrific harm financially, 
Uh, it, it's this is a dead serious thing, and they've already just right away gone to ooh, but it'll be a big political test for Ron DeSantis. It's also a big political test for Joe Biden, who's president of the United States, who has been really focused on things like Ukraine, for example, and sending a bunch of taxpayer money over to Ukraine. So he's the president, so he should hopefully be held accountable too for how things go. So considering his priority list, Mr. Climate Change Guy. And uh, still, but the media is really excited to, I think they're almost hoping, you have to You have to guess, that most of them are not dumb enough to say this, but you got to admit, some of them are probably hoping that things get bad so DeSantis gets blamed and it hurts his rising star. And Politico got dangerously close to saying that. Joy Behar was questioning his emotional intelligence on climate change. Isn't that cool? Emotional intelligence. You know, she is literally a comedian, so I don't tend to play a lot of Behar audio, even uh, when she, even when she says stuff like this. But let's let's um, let's play cut six here, Zach. This is the quote from Governor DeSantis about climate change. Quote, I am not in the pews of the church of the global warming leftists. This is what he thinks about climate change. And now his state is getting hit with one of the worst hurricanes well, that perhaps, they have ever seen. Yeah, and of course, there were have been hurricanes for a long time. This is not the biggest hurricane. So if this is not the biggest hurricane, then what explained the biggest hurricanes uh, before there's climate change? This is a question that the climate change movement can never answer, and they need to answer it. It's the same thing when they say, oh, it's the hottest year since 100 years ago. It's like, well, then why was it hotter 100 years ago if it's warming? You only need one example to at least make it so that we shouldn't focus on our, our, make our whole energy policy be about climate change. And again, I'm not in a camp that is 100%, it can't be, it's not happening at all. I don't know for sure. I'm not a, a, my scientific expertise, not that level. But I can tell you this, it is not a good use of time or money to worry about at this point, especially when we are in a race to, with China, to dominate the world. We don't see it that way. We don't talk about it that way. But China certainly doesn't care. They're building coal-fired power plants. You think they're playing by the Marquis Queensberry's rules? They're not. They're trying to take over the world. And we're wondering if DeSantis is emotional enough about climate change. I know this before. I should just have this on on the tip of my tongue, but I think there was a run of like 14 years since the turn of the century of no hurricanes making landfall in Florida. Now, they made landfall other places. Superstorms made landfall, but no actually hurricane hurricanes. I mean, they they went in that long of a run. So how could that be possible because of climate change? Well, the left would tell you that the lack of hurricanes is because of climate change. That's why it's not global warming anymore. It's all nonsense, and they're kind of baiting us to talk about it like that. We should really talk about the human beings who are there and whether or not we're doing enough for them. And it looks like Santa's giving a good try, and we'll see how it goes from there. Um, the so, But if the, all the latest stories for you will be at the front page at Breitbart throughout the day. But uh, Category 4, bordering on a Category 5, 26 states at least stepping up to assist, and then lots of climate change talk all over the establishment media. We will give you the lowlights, just mostly for your entertainment value. But that's um, all that the, you can count on us at Breitbart to try to give you the best information that we can. So winds are, I think, now a, a down to Category 1 at the moment. 
so down to 90 miles an hour, which is still still big. I mean, a hur- anything that, that is still hurricane level is is big, very, very big. Okay, if you have any insight, f- those of you who are in line of the storm, please feel free to fill me in. Um, let's see. Let's okay. So let's continue. So the the next thing I don't have a lot of updates on. We had a kind of a fascinating opening of the show uh, because we were looking at this Nord Stream gas leak that was believed to be deliberate sabotage, perhaps terrorism. Uh, two different pipelines in the Baltic Sea were uh, seemed to have been bombed. Maybe there was some sort of an accident that took place. It's hard to know for sure, and the media certainly is no interest in getting to the bottom of it. Uh, and it was a funny show yesterday because I stated my clear opinion that there is no way the United States or NATO or anyone were associated with it, anything to do with it. But that said, and then I gave about nine minutes of evidence suggesting that the most logical country to have done it is the United States in NATO. I'm not saying there isn't a small chance that Russia blew up their own pipeline. Small chance, sure. I'm not saying that the uh, there isn't a small chance that Germany, which wasn't getting a lot of gas from that pipeline, maybe they were getting some because it was did, did appear to be flowing a little bit. Um, the that they did it because they were TO'd because if Russia isn't going to give them natural gas, maybe they thought, hey, we'll just blow it up. F you, Russia, we're blowing it up. It's a possibility. There's a possibility it's the Chinese, though I think the we would have known that because there's so much radar in the region that I think we would have figured that out. I'm not saying it's impossible, though, that something could happen that's beyond my comprehension. But overall, it feels like a United States or NATO, um, uh, the United States or NATO were, was behind it. But that said, it's just still hard for us to picture that level of provocation from the Joe Biden administration and NATO to essentially commit a, a, a act of war against a nuclear power like Russia. Now, Russia is pretty weak right now. I don't think they want to deal with something like that and, you know, holding America accountable or NATO accountable. So, but it's pretty high stakes, high wire act by the Biden administration if that's what happened. And if any of you have any deeper thoughts on that, we talked about it a bit on yesterday's broadcast, but almost no updates yesterday, which is interesting. We talked about this, I think it was, uh, Don from Florida called in and said that follow the media reaction that might explain who's behind it. Because if it is a really muted media reaction, could suggest it's the U.S. because they don't want to talk about it to protect Biden. And if it's a really strong overreaction, that could also suggest the U.S. because that's like a, you know, let's blame Russia sort of deal. Um, but yeah, almost nothing, almost nothing in the media that advanced that story yesterday. So we'll continue to keep an eye out at Breitbart. But uh, experts are uh, who were connected to Trump world were telling me they believe it is Russia. I don't, uh, I, I didn't follow their logic, to be honest with you. But again, beyond my area of expertise, because a lot of this stuff is also based on intelligence that I, I don't really, you know, I haven't dealt with uh, hands on. In the past, so I'm admitting to you, I'm not entirely credible in this one. I'm just trying to walk through the political logic of it all. And I had an interesting thought. If any of you want to opine on this, feel free to give me a buzz. If Trump had done this, what would you think? If Trump had said, "We're going to make a move on on Putin," um, and even if it caused a huge environmental devastation, 
the Greens have been silent on this. China's been silent on this. The people who lecture people most in the world on the environment are the Green Movement and the Chinese government. And neither of them have said anything, as far as I can tell, about this. And we're going to keep an eye on it, and we'll report it to you if they say anything. But huge levels of methane being released into the ocean will be devastating for marine life, devastating for the ecosystem, devastating for the environment. And the Greens seem to be pretty silent, and China seems to be silent, who's always lecturing the West on this stuff. And that is, you know, maybe a data point suggesting maybe China's connected. China's got a very complicated relationship with Russia also. So maybe they're, they work together a lot, but it's not, uh, or they, they occasionally don't have mutually the same uh, interests. So Polish member of uh, the, the no, I'm, I'm not going to go down that road. I don't want to go down too far of a rabbit hole here. But the EU has vowed retaliation if the gas pipes were, uh, if the Nord Stream blast was sabotaged. What are they going to do? What the EU going to do? So it's the, the, the I don't, what are they going to do the U.S.? What are they going to do the Russia? I don't know if I buy it. But again, the key piece, if you missed yesterday's show, is Biden basically announcing in February of last year that he would blow up the pipeline if he, if he, uh, if Russia invaded Ukraine. He said it, basically. So he, he said that the Nord Stream pipeline will, will no longer be there. So basically saying it's going to blow, blow it up. He said in February. Victoria Newland, the, the Undersecretary of State, said in January, basically, we would blow up the pipeline. So until those are explained, the leader in the clubhouse for the most likely people behind it is us. And if it's us, I just like doing this exercise. What if, what if Trump had done it? Would we have a different reaction? And I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Okay. You asked in the meanwhile, because we have our priorities straight, uh, we have announced $1.1 billion more billion for military aid for Ukraine. We can't stop. We can't stop. It's every day there's more money going to Ukraine. Uh, Democrats have now sought 600 times as much taxpayer money for Ukraine than to fix the Jackson, Mississippi water crisis. An interesting comparison John Binder drew for us at Breitbart. Uh, there's a water crisis in a part of the United States known as Jackson, Mississippi. And this has fallen down the priority list uh, to the point where lawmakers want $20 million to deal with it. And this has become a bit of a controversy. It's persisted for a, a, a long time. And it affects more than 150,000 Americans. They don't have safe drinking water in that area. The water is infected and you can't even do nothing with it, Rashonda Snell, 32, said. So, and due to the severe flooding that's happening there, the treatment plant completely failed. And some residents can't even bathe or flush toilets, much less drink the water. There are children there, needless to say. Thousands of them. And the state has not dealt with this. The, the U.S. government has not dealt with this. And there are kids who are uh, really in harm's way here. Having Not having potable drinking water is a third world stuff. And it, I'm not even talking about enough on this show. And yet there is an infinite amount of money that is being requested for Ukraine. 
what happened to America first? We're the Republicans on this. America first. There's a limit to how much money, money we haven't even earned yet, money we don't even have that should go to Ukraine. I think we've long since surpassed it. We've given more money to Ukraine than Russia's entire military budget for the year for everything they do. Now, I'm not saying it's exact uh, apples to apples comparison. And I'm not saying that we should have given no money to Ukraine, but we have such an insane level of it and no accountability for where it's going. Okay. Joe Biden has warned gas stations not to raise prices after a hur- after the hurricane, despite the fact that he has drained our petroleum reserves. And we fell behind because we didn't drill baby drill. Joe had an interesting day. He gave a shout out to Congresswoman Jackie Walorski, um, who died. And this was something that came up. Let's play cut one, please, Mr. Zach. And so many of you know so much about this as well, and you're committed. And I want to thank all of you here, for including bipartisan elected officials like Representative Governor, Senator Braun, Senator Booker, Representative Jackie, are you here? Where's Jackie? I didn't think she was, she was going to be here. Yeah, well, she's not there because she's dead. So this is the sort of thing where you have to wonder, Joe is either a, a genius or a true, true moron. Because he's either demented or he is uh, him. This is such bait for people like me to talk about this. Because the consequences of this is zero. It doesn't make a difference, really, in anyone's life that he thought a congresswoman um, was in the audience and she had died. In fact, it's not even the biggest brain fart Biden's ever had. He's had many. I mean, he has one like this every day. But it's, it's tempting to do the entire show on this. He was seeking out a dead congresswoman. Maybe her ghost was there. Maybe Jackie's ghost was there. It also comes off as semi-insensitive. But, again, non-consequential. And still became just total obsession, virality online. Everyone talk about it. Let's play cut two. This is how the White House dealt with it, with this inevitably kept coming up that the Biden administration, the Biden administration had, uh, you know, th- that the president himself was trying to acknowledge a dead woman at a event. Play cut two. What happened in the hunger event today? The president appeared to look around the room uh, for an audience member, a member of Congress who passed away last month. He seemed to indicate she might be in the room. So so the president was, uh, as you all know, you guys were watching uh, today's event, a very important event on uh, food insecurity. The president was naming uh, the congressional champions on this issue and was acknowledging her incredible work. He had uh, he had already uh, planned to welcome the congresswoman's family uh, to the White House on Friday. There will be a, a bill signing in her honor this coming Friday. Uh, so, of course, she was on his mind. She was of top of mind uh, for the president. He uh, looks very much looks forward to discussing her remarkable legacy of public service. Okay, pause. All right. So, so, so that's the talking point. Just talking point. She was she was top of mind. So this came up a number of times throughout the press conference, as you can imagine. Even the establishment press was interested in the president trying to acknowledge a dead person. 
Uh, so let's play a Cut 10. This was produced by Matt Purdy, who is our uh, one of our top video guys at Breitbart. He noticed a pattern of what Corinne Jean-Pierre had to say that day. Let's play Cut 10. What happened in the hunger event today? The president appeared to look around the room uh, for an audience member, a member of Congress who passed away last month. He seemed to indicate she might be in the room. What, so what happened? He had already uh, planned to welcome the Congresswoman's family uh, to the White House on Friday. There will be a, a bill signing in her honor this coming Friday. Uh, so, of course, she was on his mind. She was of top of mind uh, for the president. She was on top of mind. And she was a top of mind. And I think the American people out there who, you know, watch the briefing uh, from time to time, maybe at this moment, will understand when someone is at top of mind. As he was naming folks, he, she was on top of mind. I don't think it's all that unusual. Uh, to have someone top of mind. What I have said is that she was on top of mind. I just answered the question about her being on top of mind. Many of us have gone through uh, that particular uh, you know, time where someone is on top of mind. Sometimes when you have someone top of mind, they're on top of mind, exactly that. She was on top of mind. Again, she was at the top of mind. Well, I think we counted 13. It's either 12 or 13. Because there's the way she says top of mind. I think he I think there might be one on his mind, and then there were 12 top of minds in one press conference. And notice, notice her playing with the cadence. Top of mind. Top of mind. Top of mind. Saying playing with the cadence of it. Oh, that's so bad. That is so bad. She is she is not impressive. Not impressive. Jen Psaki is a, a brilliant, uh, I mean, she's Cicero compared to Green John Pierre. Um, I have to say my favorite, though, is when she says, when you're top of mind, you're top of mind. Exactly that. <laughs> is that that great of an expression? Have you noticed how people sometimes fall in love with expressions and they're not that good and they can't stop saying them? It almost makes you think you're crazy. You're thinking, huh, that's an interesting expression. I had heard that one before. Or I guess maybe I should use that one a little bit more often. Oh, I think she's going to have to retire top of mind at this point, right? So anyway, the White House still does not have an explanation of, uh, of whether or not Biden was really looking for a deceased congresswoman. 56% of voters have doubts about Biden's mental fitness for office, according to a Harvard-Harris poll. Now, I would like to interview anyone who doesn't. And I've been telling you guys, I think it's a little bit overrated that Biden is some sort of a dumb jackass and is a demented person completely i i don't i I've, I've fallen out of favor with that talking point that he's truly just has no idea where he is and is deteriorating all the time i think he does steer into it i think he's cl more clever than people uh, uh than than people give him credit for to some degree uh, i become convinced of this and i can expand on that that would take take a fair bit of time i don't want to spend but that said even i'm clearly in the group that has doubts about his mental fitness of course so who are these people who don't think he's he who think he's one hundred percent sharp? That's what's interesting to me. How could that be? Everyone should be. I mean, Jill should be concerned about his mental fitness. Um, but that said, Kamala Harris, who is waiting in the wings, she had referred to North Korea as the Republic of North Korea this week. She's head to the DMZ. She gets the best assignments going to the demilitarized zone south of North Korea. And she wants to show a rock-solid commitment to South Korean security. That, that, that I get. That sounds good to me. Though, of course, you know, you can't be 
Donald Trump's foreign policy with uh, North Korea, kept them completely in check, which was one of the successes of the Trump administration. But uh, call, calling it one of, the, one of the most brutal dictators, probably top three on the planet, maybe number one. And she calls it a republic of North Korea. Good stuff. Democrat politicians, not impressive. Uh, John Fetterman's in free fall. The poll shows his campaign is collapsing in Pennsylvania. Um, and we, Dr. Oz is picking up some key endorsements. The let's play. We got a clip of here's the Philadelphia Fraternal Order of Police, the chief endorsing Dr. Oz. Let's play cut three, Zach. Today, Oz getting the endorsement of the Fraternal Order of Police in Philadelphia. We need, and this is very key, we need to have Dr. Oz in this position to support our law enforcement. That's the last thin line that the community has to be able to keep themselves safe. Yeah, and uh, Dr. Oz has been hammering Fetterman for his record of releasing convicted, not just uh, criminals, but violent criminals, even murderers. Um, so that and his mental health and the fact that he really doesn't know where he is because he just suffered a stroke. Uh, it's it, it, amazing thing how because he is such a a odd person to look at. And he was the expectations were so high for Fetterman. The fact that he is running the single worst campaign of any Democrat um, is just endlessly fascinating for me, which is why I get so much coverage on the show. Um, but his campaign has removed Black Lives Matter from its website because he's just getting hammered over law and order. And Black Lives Matter is one of the most lawless groups around, funded by the anarchic wing of the left in many cases. A George Soros link group has won a $41 million contract from Biden to help illegal aliens evade deportation. Surprise any of you? This is according to a, a report that Fox News' Joe Shoftal got, who's a good uh, reporter. And uh, John Bender's written up the details for us at Breitbart News. I recommend that to all of you. Here's an interesting one that Matt Boyle broke. A, apparently, Hillary Clinton was so paranoid of Donald Trump that she feared that the Russians were going to poison her during the third debate in, in 2016. This is apparently going to show up in a book by New York Times reporter Maggie Haberman at some point. But uh, Boyle broke the scoop on this one. Beat her to it, I guess. And it, this is the debate. They actually didn't shake hands. They did not shake hands at the debate. So... This is, I think this is out of a movie. I think there was a movie um, where this came up, where could you poison a dictator of some kind and not poison yourself in the process? And people play with this concept. And uh, Boyle gives the details of who in Hillary's myths convinced her that maybe Trump was going to try to kill her on the during the third debate. So it feels like, it feels very stunty. I don't think Hillary Clinton really believed Trump was going to do it, but she didn't shake his hand, which is interesting. So that is uh, noteworthy politically. Um, China is fearing Georgia Maloney, and they may cut Italy out of the Belt and Road debt trap, which is interesting because Italy, with their uh, globalism, and Italy's been run by globalists for at least last decade, 
they have gotten way uh, too far down the road with China's Belt and Road, which we haven't talked about a ton on the show recently, but China's Belt and Road Initiative is a debt trap where they give countries really cheap infrastructure. They've got a similar thing uh, with 5G technology. They've got a similar thing with um, a medicine called the Health Silk Road. And they get these countries hooked on them. They get them at a cut rate. And then they become indebted to China and then give China control over them economically. This is how China is doing asymmetric warfare and taking over the planet. They're essentially colonizing the planet with this plan. And there is not just the third world. Of course, they're doing this in Africa. They're doing this more and more in South America. But they're uh, doing it in Europe as well. And, you know, Chinese uh, companies are doing, Huawei in particular, is, you know, getting massive 5G contracts in the UK. So Italy was a big part of this. And um, we were going through it, Francis Martel did for us at Breitbart News, and looking at Georgia Maloney's, uh, her position on this, and she's been very tough on China and thinks it's a huge mistake, a big mistake, that uh, China is, uh, that China has been able to get agreements from Italy for Belt and Road. So if you want a reason number 700 to like Georgia Maloney, there it is. So her anti-China bona fides are uh, intact at the start of her administration. So this is why so much of the left is so freaked out about it. A woke mob has forced a, the punter for the University of Nebraska football team, a guy named Brian Buscini, who congratulated her that uh, he had to apologize for a tweet that congratulated her. What a weenus, Brian Buscini. I'm guessing he's Italian. So he congratulated her. He's got 2,500 followers, which is nothing online. And um, she's been smeared as a fascist and a neo-fascist. What makes her a neo-fascist or a fascist? Apparently she, you know, doesn't love China, doesn't love the EU, likes having families, Likes limited taxation. Likes nations versus super states of unelected bureaucrats. So it must make her Mussolini. And um, so a, a football player said congrats. And then he uh, unleashed this apology. I'm going to read it. I want to take the time to apologize for a tweet I posted yesterday. I saw a headline from a speech. The new prime minister of Italy made that seemed to support Christianity and family values. Yes, it did, Brian. I unfortunately tweeted about this without knowing the background, the history of this politician or the movement she's involved with. In no way do I support fascism or racism in any form. I apologize for posting without understanding the reality of what I was posting about. Oh, gosh. We are, we can't, it's, we can't raise a generation like this, can we? Can we do it? Can we survive? Imagine if the media just all decided that Hillary Clinton or Kamala Harris was fascist and and you apologized for saying something nice about them. First of all, it's unfathomable. And second of all, you'd be called a racist. I mean, I mean a sexist, right? Wow. And you apologize for... Uh, it's a, of course, he's getting just completely torched online by... Uh, the ratioed is the expression where there's more people saying... Uh, that uh, he should not have apologized. But apology is going to backfire. It will backfire. All right, a few other ones to point out. Uh, Lizzo, the most beautiful woman in the world, 
despite her morbid obesity, has played James Madison's 200-year-old crystal flute on loan from the Library of Congress while she was twerking. So she was twerking, which is a perverted sexual thing that people do. You, uh, Lizzo, who is um, mo- also the most beautiful woman that's ever lived and also a, uh, a, a the face of the body acceptance movement, I, I don't understand why this why we're doing this. I, I have a family friend who is not uh, even half Lizzo's size who is having some health issues and a lot of them are weight related and lack of exercise and uh, e- e- eating in a way that gives them hypertension. And it's an incredible strain in her life and it makes you very unhappy. And we're telling people that we should just accept yourself and every, you're beautiful no matter what you are, even though you make incredibly unhealthy choices in your life that strain yourself, that strain you emotionally, that strain you psychologically, that strain our system. And we just celebrate these people. We, we it's, it's not only even that we accept Lizzo. Of course, everyone accepts her. It's that we're glamorizing it. We're glorifying it. We're sexualizing it. So then we give her James Madison's flute so she can play it. I did say, I said, did someone did tell me though that they thought it was great we're raising awareness that James Madison had an old crystal flute. Not a joke. I'm going to use a swear word, so I turn down the uh, radio. If you've got a young child in the car uh, for eight seconds, you switch over to Howard Stern. Here's what Lizzo said. Bitch, I just twerked and played James Madison's crystal flute from the 1800s. What a role model. She's incredible. She is incredible. Uh, Woke movies have driven September box office to its lowest in 25 years. No surprise there. And they got a little boost because they re-released Avatar because they're going to have the first of the next four, yes, literally four Avatar sequels is coming out soon. So they even got a little bit of a bump from, you know, the highest grossing movie in history was back in theaters for the first time in forever. And the Los Angeles Lakers have announced they're going to have a pride night and the uh, they were getting so torched online because people are so sick of the woke stuff. They had to shut off the comments on that post. They're going to have a rainbow jersey. Fun. That was a woke update, by the way. I didn't introduce it, but that was it. Very cool when John McEntee reached out asking to be on the show. He's promoting a new app called The Right Stuff, which is a dating app for conservatives. Uh, I fully endorse it, and I hope the tech keeps up, so I hope it's good. Uh, A good product because the idea of it is terrific, and he's a very bright guy, and he is someone who is credited for a lot of the good stuff that happened during the last year or so of the Trump administration when it did seem like the MAGA agenda was able to take flight a little bit more than it was uh, previously. So he is a young guy, and I think he's going to be around for a while doing interesting stuff, and today we talk about some of his 
uh, history in the White House and the new app, which is pretty cool stuff. So let's hear from John McEntee. John, it's great to have you on the broadcast. I'm very tempted to dive right in and ask you about the PPO <laughs> and your time in the Trump administration. But I do love this idea for a conservative dating app. Now, I've, I've been spoken for for a very long time. But I've got family and friends and my colleagues at Breitbart, and they really do struggle because so many of them live in big cities. And we're just at this point with the division that we have that it just does not make sense to start trying to start a family with, uh, you know, a woke libtards, for lack of a better expression. And I'm, I'm being tongue-in-cheek for any Soros-funded freaks who are monitoring the show. Uh, but tell me about how you came to this idea and what it does, and uh, the, the launch is, seems like a success so far. Tell me all about it. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Um, so we put out our pre-launch video last month with Ryan McEnany kind of explaining how the app will work. Um, and then later today, it'll be live in the App Store and everyone will be able to make a profile. But we came to the idea because the current platforms are all run exclu exclusively by Democrats. Um, the bias is built into the apps themselves. Yes. And kind of just wanted to create our own space, right? They've made it clear they want nothing to do with us, which is fine, right? We don't want to date them either. The country's very divided. We want our own place. Right now, conservatives are spread out on a lot of different platforms. We want to consolidate that. Right now, conservatives have to hide their views on these platforms because of the hostility they face. So it's even harder to find each other. So we want a place where you can be yourself openly, where everyone at least has this one major thing in common and then um, go from there. Yeah, and I think something that I recommend for people, we talk a lot about family on this show, and I we also talk about reaching across the aisle. We talk about trying to be able to communicate with people who don't share our particular worldview, and that really is the spice of life in a lot of ways, and we're losing that in America. But I do think it's very different when you're talking about starting a family, and it does not make sense to me to start a family with people who you don't share these fundamentals with. And at this point in time, uh, more than ever, but in general, I, I don't get it. And I do think you should start with some, you're going to disagree on stuff, of course, but it's you should start with some of the basic principles, some basic values. So I, I totally welcome this. I think 100% if you're going to, I think it does send a signal that the water is warm. If you are coming it from the perspective, coming at dating from the perspective is by and large, some of these huge issues like these political issues, we are coming from relatively the same place. Right. I mean, the biggest deal breaker used to be religion um, yeah. when it came to dating, but more and more it's political affiliation. And when you don't agree on any major issue, it's hard to see how you could be romantically involved. So um, the right stuff will be available later today in the App Store. Anyone can download it and make a profile. And we're pretty excited about it. So how are you guys doing outreach? Tell me about how you're uh, trying to to get people connected on this? What's the age range? Tell me more about the app, the process, and uh, anything that might distinguish this from any other uh, products that are out there. Our initial our initial user base is a lot of young conservatives, and we've done outreach, and we've worked with different organizations. We've gone to turning point events. We spent all summer just reaching out to people. So we have a really good core group. Um, all of those people will be led on sometime next week when we have enough profiles, and then each user will get two invites, so it's really up to them to see how it grows. But we will be letting people on. It's just the fastest way to get on would be to get an invite. 
Now, it's the same user experience you're used to. You can see profiles. You match. You can chat in the app. Um, the biggest differentiator would be the network itself because it's going to be the highest quality. But also we have a few unique features that aren't on any other uh, of the on the other apps. Um, you, you have the ability to post a date because we want to encourage people getting out, right? We don't want them spending all day just back and forth chatting on our app. So you can post a date if you have a good idea or something fun you want to do, uh, and you can see who wants to join you. And hopefully that emphasizes just getting people out, getting on real dates. We're all about like real people, real dates. Um, and then in terms of the app itself, um, there's a few little things where you'll notice, okay, this is probably a more right-wing app, but the app itself isn't necessarily political. You don't have to work on the Hill to use it, right? It's for anyone in the country that just wants a normal dating experience, the same one their parents had, the same one their grandparents had. They want to go out with other normal people, have fun, be allowed to laugh, you know, and just um, – you know, live a happy life. So we're excited about it. And yeah, make your profile later today. So, okay. So how do people, if people want to be a part of it, where do they, where, where, how do they do it? What's the best approach? Cause it sounds like you're kind of going to do a gradual launch where you're, I think rightfully so. I think opening it up right away is just the trolls are going to overrun it on day one. So how do you get involved if you want to get involved? If you want to get involved later today, you can go into the app store you can download the app, and you can make a full profile. From there, we're going to let everyone on sometime next week, at least the majority of people, as long as you know we know who they are and everything. So we'll get to it, um, but it'll be a fun process building your profile. You'll be picking photos. You'll be saying what religion you are. You know, just some fun information. You'll be filling out some of our prompts. You know, you can say a random fact you love about America or what your favorite liberal lie is. Um, <laughs> so that'll be fun in itself. And then, yeah, hopefully next week it'll be opened up and uh, we'll go from there. All right. So the right stuff is what it's called. You can go to date, right stuff.com to uh, participate. And this is one where I'm, I'm, I'm enthusiastically supporting it. So a uh, best of luck to you. I hope the tech cooperates. That's always the big, always the big issue. And right, if it does, I, I think this is it. And we're also at date right stuff on all social media. So if you want to Good. follow us. Excellent. John McEntee is with me. He was a former, uh, one of the top aides to President Trump towards the end of Trump's administration. It had a huge level of success and kind of developed a pretty big cult following. John, I don't know if you know this. You probably do at this point. That you A lot of fans. Uh, in the in the in the deep maga base, um, I wanted to ask you a, f a few questions about that, and and tell me about your time in the PPO. And there was a lot said that you were almost like a shadow president, if you will, or you were the Trump's enforcer. Uh, but go go through the process. What is it like to staff an entire government? And when you got there, you realized that there were a lot of people who were. Uh, undermining President Trump's agenda. That was patently clear. So, but then how do you start dealing with that? How do you start uh, shaking up the, the uh, shaking up the staffing? Sure. So the personnel office um, oversees all of the political appointees and it's about three or 4,000 people. Um, in the Trump administration, obviously there were some high level um well-reported people that were kind of undermining President Trump, the cabinet secretaries that didn't agree with him on different things. But for the most part, 
the three or four thousand political appointees, most were pro-Trump. Um, Interesting. The problem was not that they were against Trump. The biggest problem is that they're NPCs, right? They're non-player characters. A lot of these people, they uh-huh. just want to build their resume, give West Wing tours, go to the White House Christmas party. Um, <laughs> they're, in fact, pro-Trump, but it's strictly superficial, right? So at, when the game is on the line and it's time to actually ban diversity training, they cuck, right? <laughs> That's the problem. Right. So it's about finding strong-willed people, which we did, um, but you need a lot more of them. So my recommendation to any future administration would be get as many people from outside of D.C. as you can. You know, just yes. they have to be on board with the agenda. There's sort of a Venn diagram that Amanda Milius always talks about, which is really funny, which is they have to be competent. They have to be, you know, on board with the agenda, but they also have to not be crazy. So yes. finding these people that can actually, you know, work in government, um, be competent. If they're strong-willed, they'll be able to get a lot done. So that was the biggest takeaway I had was actually that change can be made. You know, it can be done. Um, you just need those those right people. And during a transition period to the a next Republican president, hopefully a Trump term too, um, there's some things early on that can be done that will really set you up for success or at least make things a lot easier. Um, and I think, yeah. And, and it seems like the approach from the start of the Trump administration was to try to co-opt the establishment. I think Steve Bannon's called that the original sin of the Trump administration and, and that failed completely. And then eventually I think it was kind of towards the end of the third year into the fourth year, uh, it, there was a course correction, and then it was just let's just flood the zone with as many MAGA people as we can. But that's easier said than done sometimes. So, so what is the process of identifying who's problematic and getting them out, and then more importantly, identifying who's could be successful in these roles and how to get them in? Because you know that if you're stepping into Trump world, that you're putting yourself in the uh, in the uh, crosshairs for a lot of harassment for media investigations, perhaps even legal proceedings against you. Uh, it seems very tough to recruit in this climate. So give me the process. Give me some insight. Yeah. So that being said, you do have these different factions. You have the establishment. You have the, you know, career civil service um, as messed up as that is. If you have the top level people, though, that won't cut to media pressure that will just go through with the agenda they're out there you got to find them you can actually work with all these different groups you know so i don't want to you know i don't want people to think oh you know we won't ever get anything done because of the bureaucracy and that's really not the case i mean yeah it's hard because they're all left-wing and they're incompetent and lazy and all of that but you know if you have a strong-willed person it will work, right? It will be effective. Now, identifying all these people, it's a little tricky. What we really wanted to do was kind of credential the younger people because we thought, well, at least the next time we get this opportunity, we will have more options. Yes. Um, so that's what we were working on, putting on people, people a little more junior into just a little more senior roles so that they could learn and grow. And um, then next time we are a little more ready. If that makes 
It makes a lot of sense. And this is, I mean, maybe the biggest question, and maybe it's one that's even probably too long of an answer to, to cover in, in this interview, is uh, if Trump runs again, and it seems more than likely he, he will, and if he wins, which is a distinct possibility, uh, where would you start? Like, how do you make sure that those all that time that was wasted at the beginning of the administration doesn't happen again? Yeah, well, I mean, we learned a lot. The personnel office knows everyone now. Um, James Bacon, who worked for me there, I sure. assume will be very involved in the next process and be in the personnel office. So we have everyone's information. We know who you are now. We know where you fit in. Another big part of this is that not everyone had to be fired or replaced. Some just needed to be moved around because even somebody that's you know, a little more moderate or not totally MAGA like we would like still probably does agree with Trump wholeheartedly in one department. So it's like just move that person to that department. You know, they might smart. not agree on smart. tariffs, but they might agree right. on the border. It's like, well, this person yes. should work at DHS, you know. So it's like finding everyone and like where their strengths are when it comes to the agenda and moving them around. And like, you know, yeah, some had to be removed, but for the most part, it's just about like finding the right team and like placing people that way, if that makes sense. So I think the next administration, what you need to do is take what we've learned. Um, we have a good group of guys from the personnel office. They know every agency, they know every person that worked in the administration. And then just make sure you have a little bit better of initial structure where people know like roles are defined. You know, this person is in charge of that. That department's in charge of that. If you have a problem at the White House, this person is in charge. Like, roles need to just be defined early, and I think, you know, you could have tremendous success. Do you – how difficult was it when you were able to identify that this person is a problem or this – maybe this unit or this division of working on some project was, was a huge problem to extract that from – the whole from the 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 bigger picture um what do you mean by that exactly sorry I, it's a like if you identify someone who really is undermining the agenda how do you get them out is in more direct terms yeah i mean well every appointee serves at the pleasure of the president so it is very easy to do that being said we took over in the last year of an administration thinking we were planning everything for term two so unless yeah. you were doing something crazy, you know, we kind of just made a note of it. Okay, this person's not the best fit person for this job. And during our next, you know, mini transition in between term one and two, we'll make some changes. So there was mostly that because this was the back end of a term instead of the front end. So unless you were doing something that really, really was, you know, just totally not on board with what we were trying to do, we kind of just made a note of it. We know who all these people are that we were going to have to either make a change with or switch. Now, there were a handful that were just undermining and needed to be removed, but that was very few, you know, maybe five people, maybe less than 10 people. And that so was that that's encouraging. So you think most people that there are were not there. I got the impression that there were a lot of people that were in somehow got into the administration because Trump did not come in with those decades of political connections that basically every other politician is building up over time, which is has huge advantages, but also some disadvantages. 
when you're trying to staff a whole government that I got the impression there was a lot of people from the establishment wing of the Republican and Democrat Party who were trying to get in and were trying to directly undermine him. You got the impression that number was actually pretty low. Yeah, especially at that point in time, because they had sure. there had been some people that had been weeded out. Right. James Mattis was already gone. You know, a lot of the people yeah. were already gone. Um, but, yeah, like I said, I think the bigger problem is that the peop- a lot of the people there are just going through the motions rather than actively undermining an agenda. They're just going along to get along. They're just, you know, doing whatever the civil service says, you know. So the bigger problem is making sure people are actually active when they're pro-Trump and actually want to, like, do the agenda part instead of just the resume. I get to, you know, get a White House souvenir part. (laughs) John McEntee is with me, former director of the White House Presidential Personnel Office. He's also the founder and CEO of The Right Stuff, a new dating app which launches today. You can go to DateRightStuff.com. John, I got two more questions for you, and I would like to do do this again, so hopefully you'll come back and we could talk some more. But I I want to ask... Yeah, I, I, I want to ask about the, the when it comes to uh, w- when it comes to the role of staffing a White House, uh, the it, it seems like one of the major challenges that you would face is not just the undermining from the deep state. It's that these attacks on people like you, people who are trying to do the best thing for their country and try to serve a president and his vision that you are putting your, uh, you're, you're basically putting your head up there to get lopped off by not just the press, but by investigators. I'm concerned that this is going to be an issue in terms of recruitment. If there is a second Trump term, I imagine you disagree with that, but I want to hear you explain why not. Yeah, I think the more people don't, back down to the pressure, the more it will free up other people to do the same. Absolutely. I think there can be a time, I think right now, yeah, it might be a little scary, but I think if enough people get on board and just say, I'm not backing down, I don't care what the media says, they can subpoena me, I've done nothing wrong, I'm going forward. If enough people do that, it'll empower other people to do it too. So, I think I, I agree. It just going. seems like such a big hassle, though. It just seems like and this is where a lot of us are hassle averse is the for me, I'm I'm a total of personally like I really am a, a, a total curmudgeon about my time. It's the you could waste my you could waste my money. You can uh, you know, you can make fun of me. You can write mean stuff. I, I just don't want to have to waste a bunch of time. And it seems like getting subpoenaed for I stuff totally, and having to. I, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I totally get that. I think people just need to know, which they probably do going in, what they're in for and the type of people that are going to have to come in. They might be, you know, they might have to be younger. They might have to be single. They might have to, you know, you just, it is tough. It's a tough environment. I think why I had just mild success was because I was just a single guy focused totally on work, right? I'm not in the DC like circles. I don't even hear about any of this stuff that other people would feel pressured by. So that's why I think if you get fresh blood from outside of D.C., that will be less of an issue. What what the problem is is a lot of people are in these circles, and then when the game's on the line, they cuff. It's like if you're a lawyer from Omaha who flew in and said, I'm doing two years in the Trump administration, you're going to go for it. You know, like yes. that's a different mindset. So I think recruiting I different people in – 
will be very helpful. Yeah, it's great. And it's such good advice. And that does dovetail to my last question, which is I know there's young people in the audience who would like to go to Washington and work for the president. And uh, for some of them, it'll be especially President Trump. Uh, What do you say to those people? How do you get prepared and how do you get a gig inside of the White House? Okay, so if any young person has any inclination to get involved in politics, I would say join a campaign. It's the most fun thing. Right. It's a total startup atmosphere. You're just kind of running and gunning. Find a candidate you actually believe in, because then it will not feel like work. That's what I did. And it all worked out. If you want to work in an actual administration. um, Yeah, I think a little experience in politics would be good. I don't think it's totally necessary. I think if you're willing to work a super low level job, I started by answering phones and opening mail. I think if you're willing to do that and you don't come in with a big ask and you don't come in with a big ego, the doors will open up for you. So that would be my advice. Just get in the just get in the door, take the lowest available job or, you know, the highest of the lowest. Just take what you can get, get in, start working. Don't come to an interview asking to be, you know, in the policy shop. You know, just say, what do you have? I'll take it. Get your foot in the door. Get hustling. I think it's very possible to rise. Uh, pretty easily because there's a lot of turnover in government and politics in general. So that would be my advice to them. It's such great advice. And that applies to, I think, pretty much anything you want to do. That's what worked for me. And it works faster than you think. So John McEntee, a really pleasure to meet you on the air and good luck with the right stuff. DateRightStuff.com. Big day for you. And I'll let you get back to it. Thank you so much. That's today's broadcast. Thanks a lot to producer Zach for double duty for Greg Eben. So Zach Jones gets a double shout out. Robert Marlowe helps me pick topics. And that's it. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. I'm in love.